today's reading can be found on page 1019 in your Bibles. It comes from Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 1. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Did you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled. <coughs> Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against a nation, and kingdom against kingdom, there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what to say. Just say what is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequalled from the beginning, when God created the world, until now, and never to be equalled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is. Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will, will, will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. 
Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard, be alert. You do not know what time it will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we're with Jesus, uh, as it were, in the last week of his life on earth. Uh, He's in uh, Jerusalem, and he's coming under intensive uh, action from his opponents. Initially, it is kind of verbal opposition, but it will soon turn to violent opposition. It's the only way they can find to silence him, or so they think. Now, you can ignore for once the outline that I wrote uh, on the back, because I wrote it before I wrote the sermon, which is not really the best way to do things, but um, they print the notices before I write the sermon sometimes. So, uh, right, we're looking at the ends of time, and Matthew chapter 13, at first glance, is somewhat complicated until you realise that there are three sets of events relating to two different ends. Three separate events, two different ends. So there are events which are signs of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, which took place in AD 70. There are events which are associated with the end of the age, in other words, the end of the world, whenever that might be. And there are events which are not so much signs of either of these two ends. They happen anytime, anywhere, from the day that they were said to the day that the one who said them returns. So, we start off with two questions from his disciples. They're around the Temple Mount area. So, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And they were. You can only see the ruins today, but on the western wall, the the stones are absolutely massive. I mean, sort of like easily a quarter the size of the screen. And they're they're dressed. That means they've got sort of... um, you know, a border to them. And you just imagine 
the size of the place. They're very, very impressive indeed. Do you see all these great buildings, Jesus replied? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And then they move off to, uh, they go from the Temple Mount down into the, 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 the valley and they go up to the Mount of Olives. And they were sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. You can imagine that picture that you see today, the Dome of the Rock, that golden mosque. And it's take, the photographs are often taken from somewhere at the top or halfway up the Mount of Olives. That's where they're sitting. And they're looking down at the temple. And Peter, James, and John, and Andrew ask him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? So the disciples have two questions. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? When and what? Although, as we'll see, the key focus is not so much on trying to kind of predict things, as to how we live in the time before they happen. So in verses uh, 5 to 13, we have some events which are often wrongly taken as specific signs of the end. We read that there'll be false prophets, and we do later on in the chapter. There will be much deception, in other words. There'll be claims to be the Messiah, but they'll be phony. There'll be those claiming now is the time and they will have completely got the time wrong, just like the Jehovah's Witnesses have done in the last century a number of times. And there will be wars and rumours of wars. There'll be tsunamis, there'll be famines. People will get fearful and they will happen from the day Jesus said until the day he returns but they're not signs that are unique to the very end. And while they wait for the time to arrive, Jesus, uh, Christians will have to face persecution as well as natural disasters, verses 9 to 13. Why will Jesus' followers be persecuted? Why will people be hostile towards them? Well, it's because of me or on account of my name. In other words, the character of Christ the values that he stands for and uh, the claim implied in them to recognize his authority will not be liked by many people in the world. So those who share Christ's values and character and who do recognize his authority, who do live by his values and who explain those to others, they will be in for a hard time. A case, really, of if you don't like the message, you shoot the messenger. And even here, we have a case, though, of where they meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. Remember, that's the line towards the very end of the book of Genesis, where Joseph had been unfairly flogged off by his brothers um, into slavery in Egypt, but had risen to become the pharaoh, so that when... Uh, sorry, the, the vizier so that when there was a famine years later, he was in a position to be able to feed 
his family as they came to Egypt for food. They, he said, had meant it for harm, but God meant it for good because it enabled the people of God to survive the famine. And here, similarly, we have that. You think at this particular time, uh, it was Passover, and Jews from the diaspora, from the kind of the whole of the kind of Mediterranean basin and beyond, some of them were coming for the festival. They were what they called Hellenistic Jews. The culture of that part of the world at that time would have been Greek, hence Hellenistic. And some of them, on the day of Pentecost, just a few days later, they may have stayed on for that, may well have become converts, and they took the faith back to where they'd come from. Whereas the core Jewish group of Christians... They, as we read in Acts, were rather reluctant to move out of Jerusalem where these great events of the death and resurrection of Jesus had taken, would have taken place. And so in order for them to kind of get galvanised into sharing the faith and spreading it throughout the world, they ended up getting persecuted in Judea and then when they went to Samaria there too, so that they could take the faith to the ends of the earth in order to fulfil God's desire to reach all people of all nations. And in case even then they were reluctant to speak about that faith, well, they'd be arrested and they, or they'd be dragged before synagogues and councils and courts where they would be compelled to speak about the faith which had got them into so much trouble. We read, you must be on your guard, you'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So they may have been, initially at least, reluctant evangelists. God had to force, in a sense, many of them to share the good news. You see a similar practice in nature, don't you? Among birds where the parents kick the young out of the nest into the air so that they have to fly. And they do fly. They have no choice but to do so if they want to survive. But they were born to fly. But they have to be forced into it. It does cross your mind, doesn't it, whether the Lord is doing a similar thing in our country today. We have been rather quiet. We have been pushed onto the back foot we are being um, pushed to the margins of society in many ways. And Christians are increasingly coming under attack for questioning the moral values of our society. Let me just give you two examples. Uh, someone like Professor Glyn Harrison, who was uh, with us a few years ago and who did the Men's Weekend. He's Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at Bristol University. He was vilified by the student newspaper in Bristol 
and got pretty viciously attacked in The Guardian just for writing a paper reviewing the current state of scientific research regarding same-sex attraction. If you'd be interested in reading it, just go to cmf.org.uk. Or take Asker's Bakery in Northern Ireland. They were fined for refusing to decorate a cake with the words, support gay marriage. It was judged to breach equality and discrimination laws. But has it? Their objection was not to the baking of the cake for the homosexual couple, simply the decoration of the slogan which they wanted, which they judged infringed their Christian values. The case was due to go to the uh, Court of Appeal, but the Attorney General last week has held it back. Well, what's going on? It'll be interesting to see. Even Peter Tatchell, who is an infamous gay campaigner, originally supported the prosecution, but he said he's changed his mind. He's worked out the implications if you go down this route. He says, refusing to facilitate a message in support of same-sex marriage is not sexuality discrimination. It is discrimination against an idea, not against a person. The law, he says, against political discrimination was meant to protect people with differing political views, not to force others to further political views to which they conscientiously object. The judge's decision set a worrying precedent, Mr. Tatchell said. It meant anyone selling a service had to promote any lawful message. This begs the question, should a Muslim printer be obliged to publish cartoons of Muhammad? Or a Jewish one, the words of a Holocaust denier? Will gay bakers have to accept orders for cakes with what he calls homophobic slurs? Mr. Tatchell said, it's an infringement of the freedom, uh, of freedom to require private businesses to aid promotion of ideas to which they conscientiously object. Discrimination against people should be unlawful, but not discrimination against ideas and opinions. Well, let's see how this case develops. It's really very important. Well, we turn back to our passage and uh, we see that there's a pretty awful in situa situation envisaged by Jesus. 12, brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. It all sounds implausible, doesn't it? Can you conceive of ever betraying your children? or your spouse, or of them betraying you. But it may well happen, mightn't it? You imagine somewhere like Korea, and maybe you could imagine that happening. Who knows what any of us might do if we found ourselves in situations like they face. Well, how are Christians to respond to all the calamities, hardships and persecutions they will face whilst they wait for the end to come? 
Well, these few verses suggest a number of things, that we are to expect it, that we are to be prepared to witness, that we're not to worry, words will be given us. But that doesn't, of course, mean that we shouldn't prepare ourselves, because basically the Holy Spirit will draw from our memory banks the things that we have learnt before, which are most apt in answer to the question. Our opponents are actually weak. Their arguments are not strong. It's often a case of argument weak, and so they shout louder so as to drown out debate, which might, of course, expose the truth. You might even be betrayed by family. You might even face death. I guess none of us thought that when we signed up to become Christians. And there is the potential of not just being thought a religious crank or a bit odd, but people might actually hate us for the views that we have, views which are actually ultimately for their good. So these are things which can happen at any time from the day that they were said by Jesus to the very day that he returns. In fact, they will happen to some Christians in some places, some of the time, somewhere. We're fortunate. We've had it easy for a long time. I wouldn't want to sound alarmist, but maybe for not much longer, or maybe the tide will turn. Often when things kind of get to the rock bottom, they tend to turn up. You can see that happening in, uh, in, in, in British history and its connection with um, the strength of religious adherence. Things have to get so bad that people come to their senses and start to look up. Well, next, there are the signs, 14 to 20, of the destruction of Jerusalem. How should Christians, living at the time Jesus was speaking, behave when they see this sign? He's referring to the abomination which causes desolation. Um, that happened in 164 BC under a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who brought pigs into the temple. And he's saying that kind of thing will happen. And it did, actually. The zealots dressed somebody up as a clown and put them as the high priest in the temple just before the Romans destroyed it. Well, he says, flee, verse 14, to the mountains if they were in Jerusalem and don't enter the city if they lived in the countryside. Incidentally, this is clearly referring to 70 AD as, of course, fleeing to the hills on the Day of Judgment would not enable anyone to escape. And the early church remembered this, and they did flee to the hills. They got out of Jerusalem, and that ensured their survival when it came. And why will be Jerusalem destroyed in this way? It's incredibly severe. The destruction was almost completely total raised to the ground. Well, we'd have to look at Luke's rather fuller account. And in Luke 21, he's, Jesus says, for this is the time of punishment in fulfilment of all that has been written. You see, the Jews have rejected their Messiah, Jesus. And now God is rejecting the Jewish nation as his people 
and he's replaced the people of God with the church. Although he still, of course, brings individual Jews into the new people of God under their new Messiah when they embrace him. Then in verse 24 we read, They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That was predicted in 30 AD, recorded by Luke, probably around about the, the early 60s AD, and it happened in 70 AD, and was obviously not the end of the world, an event that the next section addresses, verses 24 to 32, where Jesus talks about the end of the world, and he uses Old Testament apocalyptic language. He's quoting from Isaiah 34, 2-4 in verse 24. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. There's a reference to the coming of the Son of Man, verse 26. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory and power. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. And then in uh, verses 28 to 31, we have the relationship between the events which have happened, that's all that's gone up to verse 23, and those that will happen, verses 24 onwards. He says, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened, verse 30, obviously a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And some of the people, verse 30, who heard Jesus say it would still have been alive when these predicted events occurred. Hence, they did flee. But now that those events have happened, there's nothing more to happen until he does, in fact, come a second time, when it will be the end. And the parable of the fig tree that Jesus shares makes this clear, verse 28. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. He doesn't mean that it's coming instantly any more than summer comes the instant new leaves appear. Rather, he means it will come without delay and with no need for anything else to come first, just as summer follows the leaves without another season coming in between. And Jesus gives us the application, and it's not about speculating when, but rather living between now and then, being ready for his return. We are looking for the good and faithful servant verdict when he does come. Verse 32, but about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. 
and he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So what advice is there for us as we await the second coming? We await for the return of the Lord Jesus. Well, we are to be awake. Of course, we're talking figuratively. But he means that we are not to doze off. We're not to live in the dark. We're to be alert. We're to be kind of um, freshened up Christians, if you like. We are to be focused on that day. Because focusing on that day will ensure how we live today. Lord Shaftesbury, the great social reformer and promoter of the gospel in the 19th century. I know how we need more public Christians like him. He did all he did because he focused upon the Lord's return. He wrote this towards the end of his life. I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. And he did, as a consequence, do so much good. He did so much good in terms of factory acts and mine acts and what have you. But he also funded and promoted the gospel to be spread in the country and around the world. So implications for us. Some questions. What are your personal challenges to standing firm? to be focused on and ready to meet the Lord face to face? Are you ready and able to face him with a good conscience when you finally meet him? Are you making the best of this period of divine patience, which is an expression of his mercy until he returns? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we don't know when you will return, but given that everything else you've predicted over centuries, uh, much of that has come true, and the rest will only come true when you do return. We know you have a fantastic track record of keeping your word. May we look to your return with great confidence, and may that confidence inspire us to be awake, focused on it but not just thinking about uh, enjoying the life to come, 